0: For Your Infilmation is brought to you by The Inquirer. We'll bet you five you're not alive if you don't know our name. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. The cat peanuts in this town, you'll have a song written about you. Welcome to 4 Year In Filmation, a podcast about good movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your host, Zach. And I'm John. Today, August 26th, 2020, it's Our Little Shit Show's one year anniversary. And what a better way to celebrate than with the American Film Institute's greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane. John, one year in, buddy. How do you feel? Um, I feel like the American Film Institute should probably change this to citizen Toxie, you know because citizen Toxy (laughs) is the best movie ever made that's that's an entry in the toxic avenger series for those of you that don't know i think it's the fourth and final one uh yeah citizen Toxie, the last temptation of Toxie, i think is the full title jesus christ lloyd kaufman um get on our show we i i feel like we bring at least like five people to your website yeah like just come on our show return the favor so that way we can get like a hundred people here (laughs) i honestly though that would be awesome yeah it'd be great um good good movie uh i see why this movie is as big a deal as it is immediately off the bat first thing i saw of it this this is a movie that more people should see like i I, like we're gonna get into it how you haven't seen it but i just feel like so many people haven't seen this movie and i don't know if maybe it's just like people think it's gonna be pretentious which it kind of is i like if you wanted to make an argument that citizen kane is like super pretentious i would I, i i wouldn't be able to fight you on that but since we're here john festivities aside as as happy as i am that we've made it one year when most people didn't think we'd do this a month how the fuck haven't you seen citizen kane like the like greatest film ever made like tons of accolades like so many references and so many tv shows and other movies like how how have you not seen this well i always had like an academic acknowledgement that this is considered the best movie ever made and i guess i was just kind of saving it uh i never really established what i was saving it for but i was saving it you know you ever have something like that in your life oh yeah yeah, yeah for sure like um i still have not seen um oh fuck what is it uh bed Knocks, and broomsticks it's like one of the only disney movies i haven't seen and it's just like i'm waiting i'm waiting for that right time to watch it i've seen every other like disney animated film i just have not seen that one right um what else do i have like that really i have a lot of movies that were like this um casablanca was another one i was definitely waiting for the right time uh for a while gone with the wind was one and now i'm just like i don't really need to see that uh this movie though was definitely one uh and i didn't even really know what to expect and having watched it it was not at all what i thought it was gonna be so (laughs) i guess i'm kind of glad i didn't pick an occasion for this movie because i really don't think it would have worked out for me not knowing exactly what it was right and so what that's another thing it's like, I feel like Citizen Kane, like people just call it the best movie of all time and they never talk about what it's about. What did you think the movie was going to be about? I thought it was going to be something a little bit more akin to, uh, like a Casablanca or like a miracle on, uh, was it 34th Street? Is it 34th Street? Which Which street is it? It, it is 34th Street. That okay. is where the miracles happen. Right, uh, I do believe you can get a blowjob on the side of the Macy's building. That that is, what, that is what New Yorkers refer to as a miracle on 34th Street. I see. So is it a glory hole? just in the side of the brick building um I don't believe that uh women of the night prefer to be called glory holes anymore nor do I uh, think they prefer to be called women of the night I think they just want to be referred to as people oh just I'm just a sex worker I'm a person that is a sex worker uh also glory hole uh used as a word to describe a person that's a new one for me so I'm gonna give credit where credit's due That, that that's a new one for me so uh yeah yeah I um it was something a bit more like that that I was expecting like maybe something a little bit more feel good and not quite so um i don't want to say morose but it's uh it's it's a little emo i think it, it's it's a tad emo um i i think if you put um you know maybe a uh let's see like a Right to spring album on while you watch this it may time out but i don't know maybe you'd have to put on two rites of spring albums <laughs> yeah it's a pretty long it, movie yeah it's two hours long and emo albums are uh typically 45 minutes long at most and, you know even maybe a and in the rain i maybe not quite that eccentric but like I, I could have seen something like that happening maybe not as much song and dance but i i was expecting something a bit more bright and not quite so brooding like there's a lot of brooding that goes on here yeah the, the film starts with a man's death and it, like it, it can never get better after that you might have some funny moments and like some lightheartedness, but it, it truly is a movie about death and i think it's about the death of like the american entrepreneur and it's a, it, it's about the death of just what you use to be able to get away with in America. I see that. There is a lot of that trust-busting piece of American history that takes place in the movie, and uh, it it's almost a centerpiece and I like how they don't really uh like line it up quite so well in the middle like in the early days like when he's a kid they give you a time period and then when he dies they give you the date of his death but in between they're not really uh descriptive about what's happening in that particular time other than what Kane is doing you know like they'll Mm -hmm. say he was 25 when this happened that's like the only time they reference an actual serious time frame or like they got married in that year okay well that doesn't really tell me anything either technically I don't even know when he died if I don't want to do the Math. Right, right, right. It's and I think that's for a timeless feeling. Like th- this movie is definitely set like late nineteenth century to um probably middling twentieth century. But other than that, like you don't re- like you said, you don't have a time frame for most of this stuff. So and I think I I, I don't think that they purposefully made it to be timeless, but it does kind of have a timeless feeling to it. It has a timeless feeling in the same way that like uh Titanic has a bit of a timeless feeling. Uh, it's like right. a it's a period of time that you see and you're like oh yeah that's what old money looks like but you don't ever really think about like the year that it was you know like there's the 20s mm-hmm. and uh you've got movies that take place in the 20s uh like your uh, Scarface again okay takes place in the 20s um Singing in the Rain also takes place in the 20s okay cool you don't see an awful lot of stuff happen in the 30s I guess because of the Great Depression uh and then you have the 40s which is kind of overtaken with the war films but this <laughs> is not like that you know there's a certain uh, a certain melodrama that comes with this old money and like you said it, it, it's a dying of a certain strata of society uh that doesn't really exist anymore it's not quite so uh there's not quite as so much personality behind it it's a lot of empty suits now you don't have people like this running around no and i mean not th- people that still exist that are like this know to hide <laughs> right because the because the american people will come for you and they will come for you hard it's a it's a new day in america and so i think that's also why citizen kane still has a place like in you know the the modern film like stratosphere because it constantly still feels fresh because you can kind of put whoever you want in kane's shoes yeah i think so Uh, i would say maybe now more than ever it is incredibly relevant um and it's definitely stand the test of time as far as like the making of the movie goes like the nuts and bolts of the movie are really what make it the story is good the writing is good the acting is also quite good but it's the nuts and bolts of the film that make it so watchable right and it's i mean it it truly set a standard for even like modern filmmaking oh yeah absolutely and we'll get into the nitty-gritty of that but first i need something that's gonna help me get into the nitty-gritty and john give us your 40th cocktail make it one for them to remember you by all right uh sweet so this was a hard one for me because there's not an awful lot of alcohol drink in the movie i mean there is but there's not a lot of different types basically they're just pouring liquor into a cup and drinking it okay that's fine that's good that i i support that uh, as far as cocktails go there's really only one time where a proper cocktail is referenced and that's where um Susan is sitting in the club and she uh, I guess asked for a highball okay that doesn't really mean anything uh, not now not not in this day and age basically what a highball drink is is uh something generally served in either a highball or a Collins glass they're basically identical um, and it's gonna have one quote-unquote shot of liquor and at least one mixer so like uh, a gin and tonic is a highball drink uh, a, mm. a rum swizzle is a highball drink a um, Moscow mule could even be considered a highball drink right so have that like one base spirit, a mixer, and usually some kind of garnish like a lime or something. Uh a lowball drink on the other hand will be uh, really anything that you can get in a rocks glass. So uh if you're drinking a spirit on the rocks you could consider that low ball. Um the old fashioned would be another good example of like a like a low ball drink. I didn't do either of those because I really didn't think that they were super important to the series. I series the the movie. (laughs) There's not a series here. Um so what I ended up doing was trying to do something like a little bit old school and a little bit Exotic, something a little bit different because i at the point in the movie that i was thinking of ideas uh i saw like okay we got old money we got like a like a classic early 20th century feel so there's there is a cocktail culture around that you know there's prohibition and there's like a couple other things that influence that but there's also like xanadu like this palace of they call it the palace of pleasures right like it's truly just like a place built to be in excess and so i thought maybe i can take this tropical kind of exotic elements of like animal gardens and being in florida uh, it's it's not a it's not a daiquiri right it's not a frozen daiquiri that you get at like a like a like a margaritaville i promise <laughs> you you only get depression at margaritaville yes. that's the only that's the only thing they're serving It margaritaville should they should just hand you the bottle you know i'm beginning to draw some some similarities here it's, it's in florida there's lots of depression <laughs> dude just let let's just open a margaritaville style restaurant but it's it's all like a citizen cane themed Ah, so it's like the opposite of the Casablanca bar idea. Exactly. Well, just neo noir. Let's just let's just make a neo noir bar. Ooh, I like it. It rhymes. So, in order to make a bar, you gotta have drinks. So here is that drink. Uh, this drink is called Xanadu. Xanadu, or right. however it goes. Are you talking about the song by Rush? Uh, it is not by Rush. It's actually by ELO. Oh, I see. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend listening to the song by Rush called Xanadu. If you're into prog metal or prog rock, which, which of course I am. Oh, okay. Yes. I didn't know that they I didn't know that they also had a song called Xanadu. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> here's a little bit of preparation that goes into making this drink. So, you're going to take uh, really any kind of glass or metal container, and you're going to take some chunks of fresh mango. You're going to drop those in the bottom, and you're going to cover it with vodka. So, it's not super important what kind of vodka it is. Don't use anything too high shelf for this, but um, it, it just... You want it to be at least 80 proof. So basically any run-of-the-mill vodka is going to work as long as it's not flavored already. Um, pour it in there and muddle the mango in there with it. You'll want to do this a few hours ahead of when you make the cocktail. Maybe even a day ahead. Because what you want it to do is infuse those mango flavors into the vodka. So a few months ago we did a cocktail where we had like a like a berry mix where we would do like raspberries and blueberries in a jar with vodka and leave it in your fridge for a while. This is very similar to that. So you're getting a similar effect. Uh, your other ingredients are going to include uh, an ounce of dry. Remove three quarter ounces of gin a half ounce of cointreau three quarter ounces of grenadine a quarter ounce of maraschino cherry juice a half ounce of lemon juice and a half ounce of lime juice so there's a little bit to this one and uh there's not really a specific order that you're going to do this in you just want to mix them all up in your uh large cocktail shaker or maybe you have a mixing glass or a beaker or something that you prefer to do it in and uh store it with ice you're going to make sure you add in an ounce of that mango vodka and you're going to strain it into a cordial glass so a uh, cordial glass being like a small wine glass or some smaller stemmed glass that you can serve uh like a cordial in so like some kind of spirit maybe not quite as strong as, like, a whiskey or a vodka, but, uh, not quite a liqueur maybe, like a hypnotic. You you could think of hypnotic as a type of thing you could drink out of a cordial glass if you wanted to be fancy about it. Ooh. Yeah, so, that Xanadu, it gives you, like, a nice red, pinkish color. That was kind of a call-out to Rosebud, right? Because I was thinking, like, well, I could do, like, a rose-flavored drink, because there are rose-flavored liqueurs. Uh, you could use, like, a rosé wine. I didn't really feel like I was in a place where I could tackle that. Like, that seems like a pretty tall order to make a cocktail based on rose bud which is like the crux of the movie right especially because uh you know can sled oh you ruined the whole movie (laughs) if you if you're here and you haven't watched it uh yeah that that that's the big mystery there um it, it turns out that it's a sled um that was called rosebud for whatever reason and uh the the reasoning behind it being its last words could be anything uh We'll get there. We'll, get there. Um, we'll maybe maybe we'll talk about it at the end if you want to, because <laughs> I I definitely have a theory about what it all means. Ah, uh, yeah, the big uh, Rosebud cinema theories. You know, we're gonna get on YouTube. It's gonna be like a three hour documentary, <laughs> and then it just gets taken down within hours because copyright. Uh, I do believe a uh, Ted Turner might still own part of this film, so uh, he's definitely apt for suing people for uh, misusing his media. That is fun. That that is fun. Oh. Uh, Ted Turner. You, you giveth and you taketh away. All right speaking of giving and take a thing away let's bring in our good friend frank synopsis frank how you doing buddy hey hey i'm doing just fine how are you doing this fine uh what what is the month now is it august it is august i'm i'm very glad that you are uh coherent enough to know what month it is uh what year do you believe it is frank what's a year fuck all right maybe that's the secret to how you've lived for so long frank you just don't count the years hey if you never keep track the numbers don't mean anything to you that's also my theory on bank accounts yikes um just writing bad checks left and right all over central park uh, what is writing oh dear god frank frank you've been with us a year you've been employed for one full year uh is this the first time ever that i've been employed for a solid year? yes uh actually yes uh in fact in the gig economy that made this quite uh quite uh capable you know i was able to do so and uh it, it definitely lasted longer than uber uh definitely <laughs> lasted longer than postmates uh they, they didn't like me there uh do you have a car frank no oh okay so uh we're you uh were you giving people their things by Rickshaw? Oh, I see. Uh no, actually, my buddy Rickshaw is uh he's out of town. He doesn't live in New York anymore. Oh, okay. This is going nowhere. All right, Frank, so Citizen Kane. What do you what do you know what do you know about Citizen Kane? Uh yes, actually one of my favorites. Um, you know, he's he's a, he's a great guy. He uh he is looking out for the small man. He ran for office. He owns a large chain of pizzas known as Godfather's Pizza. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Uh Citizen Kane, uh Charles Fox Foster Kane just, uh, you know, has all those random little Godfather's pizzas. I only I really remember seeing one Godfather's pizza in my entire life, and it was on the inside of a gas station. And you know, interestingly enough, radio host as well. Radio host as well. Yes, we'll definitely get into that later. Uh, you'll have to listen back to the episode. I'll make sure that you know everything about that. But Frank, what I need you to do for the people for uh, the 40th time in a row is uh, tell us a little synopsis of Citizen Kane. Go for it. All right. Right, let's bring it all the way back around town. Charles Foster Kane, the millionaire newspaper tycoon, is dead. He leaves the world with one final message, Rosebud. Reporter Jerry Thompson is tasked to find the meaning of Rosebud. And he sets out on a journey to speak with Kane's friends, enemies, and lovers. Beautiful. Beautiful. That is uh that that is indeed what happens in the film and uh what whatever whatever else you glean from it is uh beyond the plot. <laughs> so thank you, Frank. Um I I think that the people have a very good uh how do you say um jumping off point for this if they've never seen it and uh we appreciate you frank uh we have left you a small bonus of 75 cents in your check this week and uh we hope we hope to see you next week all right well i will see you then uh, i'll see you next august or something okay whatever t- that is <laughs> whatever that is for frank that might be tomorrow all righty john are you back yeah um so are you are you studying like herman cain like i found all these books on herman cain outside yeah uh you know i think that frank may have brought those in. i think he also thinks this is the library because every now and again i will find uh used magazines uh used books uh just laying across the hallway in our office and uh, i do truly believe that frank thinks this is a drop-off point for the library i see so what does a used magazine look like how can you tell a magazine to use well you know it'll be crumpled it'll be sticky in places from food or various other substances uh it may have been used for warmth Um, ah yeah okay there it is that that that's the telltale sign i was looking for yeah you can definitely tell when a magazine has been ruffled and it's not you know fresh off the fucking stand do people get magazines from like magazine stands anymore i don't know i remember growing up there were like uh there was like a place in the mall yeah that was like a newsstand whatever happened to that you, you know what that is now that is a like um that is a uh incense store now or like a uh what, what do they call those things uh essential oils ah uh, okay yeah so they sell tchotchkes and snake oil yes exactly this one th- this oil will make you feel less stressed out it smells like mint yes the only oil that's gonna make me feel less stressed out is um crude oil. whatever chick-fil-a's fry in their- fries it. oh peanut oil ah uh, yeah that's the one no actually no it's not peanut oil it's actually vegetable oil oh do they change over um i think they've always been vegetable oil like when, when i worked there when i was a youngster uh it was it was vegetable oil oh uh this is not the movie this is definitely not the movie and i definitely don't need to mention that i worked at chick-fil-a they may or may not sue me alrighty so citizen kane um what 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 could we really give you about this film that hasn't been said already um i think the best place to start is to just talk about about who's in the movie who made it and why so i'm going to attempt to do that with our first little bit of information which is your basic wikipedia info um we do this every week on the podcast so that you don't have to go look it up it, it is our courtesy to you it's almost like a chocolate on the pillow like this is given information this is something that you wouldn't have to really go digging for all right so citizen kane was directed by orson wells orson Welles a giant a ginormous just scaling man in the world of cinema uh yeah also in the world of making people think aliens are landing yes we will get there all right it was also produced by orson wells uh it, the screenplay was by herman j manowitz and orson wells uh we will get into dispute there later. Uh, the film stars Orson Welles as Charles Foster Kane, Joseph Cotton as Jedediah Leland, uh, Dorothy Comergray as uh, Susan Alexander Kane, Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein, George Kaloris as Walter Parks Thatcher, Ruth Warwick as Emily Monroe Norton Kane, Jesus Christ. Uh, who would bother to uh, give their character that many names? And uh, William Olland as Jerry Thompson. Uh, the music was by Bernard Herrmann, Cinematography, by Greg Tolan, edited by Robert Wise. Uh, Production company Mercury Productions, which is Orson Wells' in-house theater and film production company. Uh, The film was distributed by RKO Radio Pictures and uh, its release date was uh, May 1st, 1941 at the Palace Theater in New York City and uh, September 5th, 1941 uh, in a wide release. Well, as wide as it could be. We'll get there. Uh, Running time was 119 minutes, so just under two hours, with a budget of eight hundred thirty-nine thousand dollars and a box office return of 1.6 million dollars in its uh many 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 re-releases over the years so that is your basic info um and also just to give you guys a heads up uh we could probably do about five episodes on citizen kane like there is so much here like it, it like it is dense as dense as the film is the history and just all of the just recorded things for this movie is it's just dense so i chose for our one year anniversary episode i chose to just give it a rough outline so i so for those of you that may know the citizen kane story and uh, how it was made and all of the ins and outs and all the players this is going to seem very elementary and rudimentary to you but for those who have absolutely no idea who that's who the this series is for is for people who just want to know, like, you know, the just the basic ins and outs. Yeah, like me. People who don't know anything at all. Yeah, exactly. So, we, like i would love to do like you know a five six part series at some point in the future but for now this is going to be what it is um if you want more information right now you just want it right the fuck now um you can watch the documentaries the battle over citizen kane and uh rko 281 uh rko rko 281 is actually a pretty great documentary it's one of my favorites to revisit every now and again um and it is named that because that was citizen kane's production code Oh, awesome. Correct. Uh, And if you don't know what a production code is, that's like, uh, have you ever been somewhere where you know they're filming something and it'll just say, uh, production big shiny toenail or something like that? Like it's something that they give so that people know what's going on, but they don't necessarily have to say what they're filming because otherwise it may like, uh, produce crowds right it could get leaked to twitter it could get leaked to twitter like they're filming stranger things here we gotta go see the stranger things kids doing their job leave they're not kids anymore i'm pretty sure they're all like 17 now right but you know just just leave them alone let let them be normal let let them just leave do them their alone. job leave them alone leave the children alone they didn't ask for this their parents probably made them all right yeah so let's so without further ado here is here is a very cursory overlook of the making of citizen Kane. on october 30th 1938 those who had their radio dials turned to cbs radio believed the world was being invaded by martians ah martians not martinis not martinis if the world was being invaded Invaded by martinis, I think we would have a much better world. You know, just rivers and rivers of fucking just martinis and olives just going down the fucking. <laughs> just go just raining from the sky you know what unpopular opinion i do not like dirty martinis you don't like dirt so is that is that a dirty martini where there's a where there's something in it like an olive it's if it's got an olive in it and it's got a little bit of olive brine in it that is considered a dirty martini don't like them oh wow really? it's do, do you not like olives or is it just you don't like the two mix yes to both yes to both okay i'm see i i think olives is also one of those uh cilantro things like you either you either have a palette for olives and you always have or you just don't and you makes never sense will. i guess a nasty texture right right i mean i get it i understand i think olives are great in sad stuff like something about like putting some mozzarella cheese and olives in a salad is just mwah, perfect uh yeah yeah you should go to the mediterranean you'll find a lot of all of that oh absolutely that's why i love mediterranean food anyway that's not citizen kane um this <laughs> is not, not citizen, citizen kane, kane. <laughs> just, uh, you know, and that that's the other thing with this movie is people just be like, oh, well, it's no Citizen Kane. <laughs> and it's just, so th- this is definitely a movie that people compare other movies by. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to October 30th, 1938. Um, It turns out that the world was not being invaded by Martians, but what they were hearing was a reading of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds being portrayed by the Mercury Theater Company and narrating that, uh, narrating that fateful broadcast was none other than Orson Welles. Uh. His, his booming voice shocked the nation and got the mind of George J. Schaefer spinning. George J. Schaefer was the studio head of RKO Pictures, and he wanted to work with Orson Desperately, Orson had turned down three scripts from Warner Brothers. Oddly enough, Warner Brothers has the distribution rights to Citizen Kane now, and a supporting role in Wuthering Heights. Ah, uh, yeah, I have no idea what that is. I'm gonna guess that someone walks a tightrope across uh, like a busy city street from two buildings. I actually don't know what Wuthering Heights is. Um, I can only assume it's probably a neighborhood in New York City. That that would be uh, that would be my best guess. Right. So like the Lower East Side, uh, the Lower West. West Side, the Washington lower north Heights, side. Wuthering Heights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirty fourth Street. <laughs> yeah, that's the one where uh, Santa Claus lives, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he basically lives in a clock tower like vulture from Spider Man. Jesus Christ! Orson Welles was somewhat of a Renaissance man. He wrote, directed, acted, and produced his own theatrical productions. It would not enter the film industry unless he could have complete creative control, like he did in the theater. Ah, a bit of an auteur. He he is a bit of an auteur. Right, not like like uh your boy from troma uh lloyd kaufman <laughs> lloyd Co- i will give lloyd kaufman an an auteur stamp just because i mean the, the man does it all yeah and he's good at what he does even if what he does is kind of gross and you know what we we have to have the gross citizen kane we have to have the citizen kane of comedy the citizen kane of gross horror films like and i think i think lloyd kaufman is a good is a good candidate for that okay yeah i see that okay all right so schaefer offered wells a contract with rko where he would produce write direct and star in two films mercury productions got a hundred thousand of this deal for the first film they were to they were to receive 20 percent of the profits after the film surpassed 500,000 at the box office they would receive 125,000 for the next film and the contract also gave wells complete and total creative control over the films as long as RKO approved of the stores. Right. So, in other words, you don't have any creative control so he can as long as they say yes to the concept of the film and they say yes to the script you can do whatever you want as long as it stays within budget so i mean creative control i guess means that they can't as soon as they approve it they can't say no to it like i Uh I think that's mostly what the contract stipulates. you can actually read this contract and i i did try to read most of it but a lot of it is a lot of legal mumbo jumbo but it i mean it they don't give contracts out like this anymore where it's just like you can do whatever you want want or just as long as it's not you know fists going into assholes the movie we we will probably improve got it got it got it we can do better than that the movie except we can do better than that the movie jesus um so well's first concept was actually to make a film adaption of the heart of darkness but he he could not fit the story within the film's budget a test footage was actually shot of this and one of the it had one of the first uses of a handheld camera in cinema history Interesting. So it's like a found footage meets apocalypse now? Correct. So it was more of like a uh it was going to be a on-foot cameraman. So like he's following them. I think it was still omniscient like the uh the camera work was still omniscient and not necessarily, you know, someone filming what was going on. Like the cameraman is not a character in the story. I see. But, you know, it was supposed to be like kind of a fast-paced retelling. Because Heart of Darkness is actually a pretty slow little... Is it a novella? I can't remember. It is, yeah. It's, uh... I don't remember how many pages. I think it's like 120, 130 pages? Yeah, so it's not technically novel length. Right. But it is very, very slow. um anyway so when well yeah while wells got this got the idea for the script of citizen kane together he tried to put up a film version of the smiler with the knife that was the star lucille ball but uh rko didn't really go for it they didn't want to do it at the time they really just wanted him to come up with an original concept so you know that they could warrant all that money that they just gave him if they wanted to do if they wanted to do a novelization adaptation they would have just fucking got anybody else to do that this is orson wells we're talking about all right so the writing. Citizen Kane is controversial uh the only two things that could be agreed upon the concept was by Orson Welles and his collaborator Herman J. Menowitz wrote a lot of the script so people people want to think that Orson Welles wrote directed acted and produced this thing but really he may have like a lot of what he wrote may have not actually made it to the screen uh Orson Welles and Herman would spent would send pages back and forth to each other to rewrite uh some would argue that Orson threw out all of Henderson's pages, while others think that not a single word of Orson's was in the script. Mm, I see. So they were playing a bit of that chess-by-mail thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, it was basically like it just depends on who you want to believe because manowitz like to his dying breath said that every single thing that he wrote made it on screen while orson welles was very quiet about the whole ordeal so like you you could never know he didn't seem to give credit where it was due i see because um it would actually have been a breach of contract because orson welles is supposed to have you know wrote a majority of the film. I see. So for legal purposes, Orson Welles is writing. Correct. Correct. Even like, and he did come up with the concept, and um, you know, Manowitz came onto the scene and he wanted to help, and I think that probably Orson Welles liked what he was writing so much better, but he had to like you know argue with it so that it could look like he did that's my personal theory but the world may never actually know but according to the work logs and because you know like they used to have work logs of these things so that they could keep track of who did these things but they seem to be you know locked away like people don't want anybody to see them and i don't really know why but according to the work logs and unused pages orson wells made substantial and definitive contributions to the script mm-hmm. that is what has been said about it when because a lot of people kept you know asking rko like okay so who actually wrote this thing like you know we want to know it's the greatest film of all time like who actually wrote this thing and it's like they're basically their answer is he made contributions please shut the fuck up <laughs> the movie right. is what it is we're not changing the opening credits now but he did get a writing credit for it yes he did and he got the top build writing credit for it and that's where people are kind of like mm, did he though right okay so that's where the controversy comes from that's where the controversy comes from it's like exactly how much of this script did orson welles write uh, the script was also called into question because of its parallels to william randolph hearst who was a billionaire business and like newspaper tycoon in the 40s and uh, he was very well known for uh shooting down anybody trying to say anything about him and uh we'll get a little more into that later because that kind of comes into play uh more towards the release of the film i see so he thought they were doing like a being john malkovich before being john malkovich correct Which is the um, Citizen Kane of... Movies that people say are great, but are very middling. (laughs) Um, Ah, I see. So you have to be the Citizen Kane of something. Ah, yes. uh, Just like how I am the Citizen Kane of not taking my laundry out of the dryer. Right, right. Laundry is just... Man, how have they not come up with, like, an automated laundry machine that'll just fold and put away your laundry for you? We need a robot mom. Somebody make a robot mom. Uh, You could just shower in your clothes and wash them on your body. But then how would you wash your skin, your beautiful porcelain skin? I... We have to move on, <laughs> all right so let's move on to the filming of this orson wells had a filmmaking handbook made for him by production advisor Miriam greiger wells took a lot of inspiration from the cabinet of dr caligari which was a german expressionist film uh and if you ever if you go look this up you can find it on youtube i think it's about like 25 to 30 minutes long uh tim burton also gets his influences big time from the cabinet of dr caligari yeah so you watch something like uh nightmare before christmas and- and it's just got this stamped all over it oh exactly like just down to like the sets and the like the slanted buildings and the very gothic demeanor see german expressionism uh not to get too far into this but it was known for being very dark very eccentric very gothic and it a lot of the german expressionist films came out during the nazi um occupation of germany and also after because the the, the people of germany were just in such despair and they didn't have a lot of money for the films so when they so they had to pretty much paint all of their sets so what they would do is just make it as eccentric as possible and as dark as possible to save on hmm. money. Then you get your Nosferatu type stuff if that's exactly what that's where that all of that comes from it comes from a point of despair in the german people there have been many turns out <laughs> all right so greg toland was a cinematographer in the film and he got the job by marching up to wells and saying he wanted to be of use in the film uh, and he he had he was a fan of orson well's place i see so he kind of pulled the uh he pulled the thing that you do when you're trying to make a movie like et you know and you just show up <laughs> and then you're like huh i'm gonna do this now i need this job give me this job <laughs> all right are, are you are you saying he spielberged it i'm saying he spielberged it yes jesus christ all right um tolan and wells actually share the top build role in the film at wells's insistence and this is actually something that does not happen ever like uh, the cinematographer never gets put right up there with the director i think in this movie it's probably warranted oh absolutely i mean it's just i mean just look at the damn thing it's gorgeous it is every scene every scene is a fucking painting it's uh it's just like a um it's like kubrick oh man we we need more cinematography like this in like television and film because all too often i feel like it's just point the camera here make it shaky here like ugh, dude i hate fucking modern cinematography most modern cinematography hey man and i i know it's not their fault i know they want to do more and the studios are just like nah, it's got to look like a Marvel v i the iphone is the best and worst thing that ever happened to film oh yeah because like i can make a beaut. i can like you know i can technically shoot a movie on my iphone which is a good and bad thing it's kind of like give it's kind of like facebook where it's a good and bad thing where it's like now everyone has a voice and everyone is the narrator in their own story and the problem with that is now everyone's the narrator of their own story right all right test footage was made of the first 20 minutes of the film uh mostly the el rancho scenes um and rko was so impressed that they agreed to increase the budget from five hundred thousand to eight hundred ninety thousand dollars. that's a bit of a jump it is it's a bit of a jump um orson wells knew exactly how much it was going to cost after you know doing the first 20 minutes now the interesting thing about the test footage is that the test footage that they shot actually ended up in the picture because orson welles shot them as if they were principal photography he shot them in the wee hours in the morning while no one was around so what he was doing was he was filming them for free so like the studio gave them separate money to do the test footage Mm -hmm. so by filming the actual fucking scenes and actually filming the movie while you know under the guise of test footage he was actually saving the production you know hundreds of thousands of dollars Kind of a smart move. Super smart move. Um, You definitely get fined for it now (laughs) because uh, Orson Welles was kind of the first and last to do this practice. Right, because the unions don't really like that very much no because in that case it's like he's profiting off of you know the work of other people who are not sharing in that profit so i think orson wells didn't do it to screw over like you know the little guy in the production i think he did it just to screw over rko which is ironic considering the, the movie and what it's about and who it's about exactly neither here or there all right so once production started up orson wells worked 16 to 18 hour days his uh, old age makeup like towards the end of the film took four hours to apply Ooh, and now they could just use a Snapchat filter. Exactly. It's crazy. We're going to get to a point where we don't even need them anymore. We don't even need actors anymore. We'll just animate everything and have them uh, voice it over. And you get a lot more options with voices because it's easier to dress up a voice than to dress up a face. Exactly. And if you don't like the voice, you can just replace the voice, which is beautiful. There you go. <laughs> so you can have like Danny DeVito read for the character and then be like, ah, no, I just, I want to, I want Scarlett Johansson to come in here and pretend to be this troll. <laughs> (laughs) This troll that looks very human, and it looks like we just put a human actor in troll makeup when in reality it's all fucking computer animated, baby. And we can troll exploitation. We can just outsource that shit. We don't even have to film it anymore. It's like film studios are just gonna become a single office. Yeah yeah, they'll just draw up a storyboard and they'll ship the storyboard off to like China or like El Salvador and have like a production team there do it for like a third of the cost. Or Atlanta. Atlanta all- oh, Yeah, or Atlanta. A- Atlanta actually has a lot of like small like uh, homebrew animation studios there. It's pretty cool. There uh I can't remember what the name of it is, but uh the entirety of Archer is actually animated in Atlanta. Well, that's fun cuz they definitely have to earn that meat in Georgia thing at the end of the uh at the episode. Exactly, exactly. Well earned. Well earned. All right. So, Wells actually injured himself on two occasions on the set this seems to i don't i didn't mean for this to happen but it seems like we've been having like a um like just a strew of films where people get injured on set i mean it happens it's not it's not something you want but it does happen um so he injured himself the first time uh during the scene where kane is smashing all of the china after his second wife leaves him uh wells was uh, wearing eye contacts that aged him so like like they're i guess they wanted his eyes to look older which i didn't know was a thing um but they actually limited his field of vision by about 70% and hurt him terribly um a doc a doctor actually actually had to put the lenses in. so because he couldn't see what he was doing he actually ended up cutting his wrist pretty badly ah i see because he's smashing all that glass he's smashing all the glass he's taking he's putting it up his nose so he probably had like you know a respiratory tract infection all kinds of other things but they don't want to talk about that they never they never want right. to tell you about people's glass addictions like the tin man and uh fucking uh jim carrey when he did the grinch exactly did jim carrey get sick when he was being the grinch no but they tried to put some weird contact lenses on him and he really didn't like it so uh as the story goes and i don't know how true it is but uh they brought in somebody who had been like a pow in vietnam to sit down and talk to him about what actual pain is like (laughs) And then he agreed to finish the movie. Jesus Christ! I did not know that. We'll have to, we'll have to do that one eventually. I want to do a deep dive on that. Ah, uh, yes. Jesus, they 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 brought in someone from fucking Vietnam to give him the "Don't be a pussy" speech. That is amazing. Basically, yeah, that's basically what happened. I love it. I love it. All right. So the other time, or someone else injured himself stuff, was he fell ten feet off of a set uh during the scene where he's yelling down the stairs at uh, Gettys, his uh, political opponent. Ah, uh, yeah, I love this. He uh, broke his left ankle, and he was actually in a wheelchair for two weeks of filming. Uh, So, did they just film all the stuff where he's sitting down, then? Yes. Nice. Very nice. They they couldn't have put him up on, like, a a marionette thing? Just... I mean, they do come from the theater world. They probably could have made it happen. Yeah, that would have been fun. Why are there strings in this shot? Don't worry about it. Why not? Why aren't there strings? I've got no strings to hold me down. Alright, so, Wells actually had a real furnace for the final scene, which took many takes. He also had the score playing in the background to sync uh and choreograph it just right yeah so uh this is something that i think about frequently when watching movies like this especially when they have a score that lines up so well with what's happening on screen i know a lot of times they'll like film the movie and then they'll record the soundtrack after the fact with it playing in the room but i guess this was kind of the opposite of that yeah this wasn't re- that wasn't really possible back then you kind of had to do it all on the fly because they gave you a certain amount of time to film something because it was all on sets so you, had to, so you had to get in and out f- so that the next movie could come in. So you didn't have time to, like, you know, wait for this kind of thing. And also, like, they probably, RKO probably didn't want people to see the movie, even if it's just, like, the orchestra, before the movie came out. Because, you know, non-disclosure agreements didn't really exist back then in the film industry. That's actually really interesting. We'll have to get into that at some point. All right. So, Prince, the, one uh, of the only other things that we know about, like, how long this film took was that the principal shooting actually ended on October 24th, 1940, and that's when post-production began. Uh, The film was edited by Robert Wise, uh, who would later go on to direct The Sound of Music and Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Mark Robinson, who would go on to direct uh, In the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, which is a movie that i think you would really like john i've heard of it uh the sound of music again with the the german suffering (laughs) i don't know i think that movie might uh, be a little too easy on the germans of that time (laughs) um a trailer was made for the film that did not actually have one single scene of footage from the film rather it showed the behind the scenes footage of the film it is the only known behind the scenes footage that is known to exist in the world really (laughs) of this film yeah it's it's nuts So, like, they filmed it while they were filming the movie, but they made sure that you didn't see a single scene of footage from the film. And I'm just, I'm just like, you couldn't get away with this now. (laughs) People would be like, well, fuck that then. It looks like a documentary. And people just don't like documentaries still, for some reason. Honestly, with the amount of good documentaries out there, I'm surprised that hasn't taken off yet. Like, I know it's never gonna be a blockbuster type thing, like, people aren't gonna line up to go see, um, The War by Ken Burns, Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, but it's, it's Gotta be more, I think. Like, we're gonna have to accept it. But I mean, especially with all of the documentaries that come up on Netflix, that's the thing. I think people prefer to watch documentaries like in segments, like at home. People don't necessarily want to go to a movie theater and watch a documentary. And I I mean, I I guess that's fair. I understand. Like, two hour long documentaries are kind of hard to get through in one sitting at times, depending on what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't want to feel like you're at school while you're trying to be entertained. Yeah, you'll fall asleep in the movie theater. And I mean, God. God forbid i finally get some fucking rest <laughs> that reminds me of uh my fiance Lindsay. Uh, her father like anytime we watch a movie with him he immediately falls asleep and it, that's why he doesn't go to the movie theater because all he does is just go to sleep and it's a waste of money Ah, I see. So he's a habitual movie theater sleeper. Does he snore though? Uh no, usually Uh, not. At least there's that. At least there's that. If you're gonna be a movie theater sleeper, you gotta not snore. Because you're gonna get woken up or you're gonna get kicked out. Or both. Yeah, exactly. And that one guy's gonna be going around with a flashlight, you know, looking for kids or making out with each other in the back rows, you know, he's got fuck pants undone, just ready. (laughs) I've never understood that. How do people do that? Like, like, why is it they I mean, I get it if there's no one else in the movie theater makes enough sense but if there's other people there like is it is that is that part of it is that the rush i think if you're gonna go like further than that yeah that might be a part of it for some people I, I don't really know i think most of it's just like you're 14 years old and you can't just chill out in the living room with your parents around and do that so you uh risk it in a movie theater you could always go to a public park but that's kind of grody so you know agreed don't don't get a blowjob in the woods behind the park there there's other things going on there that you don't want to be a part of <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go on to the release of the film. Uh, so remember when I said the film may or may not have had some parallels to William Randolph Hearst? Well, he found out, and he was fucking pissed. Uh, of course he was. Hearst went as far to have his lawyers threaten RKO, Orson Welles, and Radio City Music Hall, where the film was set to be premiered. Uh, Radio City Music Hall a- ended up not premiering the film because of it. I don't know what dirt he had on them. I couldn't find out. Um, uh, But the film would actually end up having its premiere at an RKO theater, on Broadway in New York City. Uh, Hearst threatened to expose Arceo's connection to the Rockefellers, called Wells a communist and an adulterer, which was true. Uh, he, what he, part? Uh, the, the adulterer part. Uh, not the communist part. Well, that's up for debate but um i see yeah the martians gave him the idea (laughs) okay now that i am done taking out this center of your brain you will now be a loyal member of the communist party welcome comrade i think it's awesome how they just put that implant in his brain to play the soviet national anthem over and over (laughs) and over again so everything he does is to the backdrop of the soviet national anthem you know what i'm sure there are a few memers out there that have the same exact effect yeah yeah (laughs) it seems to be like ever since high school i've just heard the soviet national anthem just about once every day it's mind control zach oh beautiful i love being mind controlled you know i'm mind controlled by the communist party by disney by uh everything else basically just honestly though yeah let him just let him take the wheel i'm tired of driving bro yes jesus and or walt disney take the wheel i don't want to feel anything anymore (laughs) perfect (laughs) all right um and so uh words all right so the film got kind of positive reviews and was a moderate success even becoming the eighth highest grossing film of 1941 uh this made wells very upset but the backers were fine with it because they recouped their costs they got a little back they were like all right was a pretty good venture we'll do it again and wells was like i wanted this to be the greatest film of all time i wanted it to just soar to new heights of gross domestic product i don't i don't know what he wanted but i i think i think he wanted this to be like you know a billion dollar film and it just really wasn't people just weren't really feeling it and that's kind of like the story of citizen kane is like i don't think orson wells ever really got to enjoy its success it's kind of like he had to spend the rest of his career proving that he was a worthy filmmaker of citizen kane none of his other movies really got to like the same level that citizen kane did not that they weren't good but like citizen kane was was his first and best film it's kind of like he hit the nail on the head first time uh he peaked he peaked in high school in the movie world (laughs) well i think this would be peaking in elementary school which i think that has to be even sadder than peaking in high school imagine being aware enough in elementary school to realize that is the peak of your life and it's all downhill from age 10 so it's just like i might as well just be the coolest nine-year-old on the block there you go (laughs) stay being the cool nine-year-old and honestly uh you do you you do you and i you know what just everybody just do themselves that that's that is if you take nothing away from this podcast just do yourself yeah you sit in the back of that movie theater and you treat yourself you don't need anybody (laughs) else to help you back there (laughs) i actually think you get in more trouble from just helping yourself than you do someone else yeah just ask Wee herman just ask Wee herman that's the fucked up thing about america (laughs) anyway all right so it wouldn't be a four-year information podcast if i didn't talk about the home video releases ah yes oh and it's a swell little it's actually not convolutional it at all it's actually pretty straightforward uh so the original film negatives were actually destroyed in a new jersey warehouse fire uh new jersey how many <laughs> national treasures were destroyed in new jersey warehouse fires um well first of all new jersey itself is just a giant warehouse fire but right. um i actually don't know what else was uh, was lost here i didn't bother to look it up i was just like of course the original prints were destroyed uh but luckily an, a number of other final prints so like you know prints that went out to movie Theaters exist if they were they were actually able to recreate the negatives from that. Okay, well that's pretty good. Uh, I does that degrade the quality in any meaningful way, or do you think it doesn't matter? Um, yes and no. So the quality used to be a lot better because it would have been a one to one. So like you're transferring it from one film negative to the to a uh, finished like you know picture. Mm -hmm. So technically, if you got a close like one that was uh made in the first I guess like hundred thousand uh reproductions you're actually getting a pretty close approximation to what that original negative was but you know as you get further on down the line and that's kind of the problem with digitalization is that just by making it digital you're already degrading it by so much and that's why like a lot of uh blu-ray players have upscalers so that you're actually seeing what they want you to see as opposed to what you actually have i see i see so yeah. it's like that thing they do on crime shows, with like zoom in, enhance. Zoom exactly, in, enhance. I I, it, I shudder at how many films have been destroyed by scan and pan. It just it makes it, like it it burns the bottom of my stomach. Uh, just like that new jersey warehouse fire burned the bottom of the negatives <laughs> oh good god it's just that just makes me so sad all right but none nonetheless the film was released on home video in 1978 and 1985 so that means vhs and betamax um it was released on laserdisc in 1984 by the criterion collection yes the criterion collection has been around for a very very fucking long time <laughs> um it was later released on dvd in 2001 i own a copy of that um, and in 2011, a Blu-ray disc was made available with a 4K transfer cut of the film. I also own that. Of course, you do. <laughs> yeah, and it also comes with the documentaries of the the uh, the case against K- uh, Citizen Kane and um, RKO 280. So it's actually pretty cool. You get all the Citizen Kane you need all in one convenient package. Alright, another thing with the uh, home video releases is uh, Ted Turner who owned the rights to the film in the 90s and I believe he owns part of it now uh, wanted to colorize the film um, because he's a fucking monster and he did this with a lot of shit. Uh, production actually had to be halted because of an unusual piece of Orson Welles' contract that forbid any colorization or editing of his film without the distinct permission of the Welles' estate. Um, Luckily, they only got the final reel of the film colorized and only one minute of it has been released huh fun yeah uh where can i find the one minute of colorized citizen kane that i can watch on a loop 120 times to (laughs) just say that i've seen it just to say that you've seen citizen kane you have seen a feature-length version of a colorized citizen kane Uh, i believe it's on youtube i'll try and find a link for you all right so that's pretty much like the release and you know a little bit of the production history of uh, citizen kane um i wanted to just spend a few minutes talking about Some of like why this is considered the best film of all time because a lot of people I've known that have watched this have been like well it was okay I don't know if it's the best movie I've ever seen it's like but you don't understand yeah I mean those people also loved Fast Seven and thought it was great I love it the the connection that they're all a family I I like movies that are about families I also like movies about cars and Vin Diesel it's kind of like my family but if I was Vin Diesel and I had a lot of money and I had fast cars and You know, I didn't have to pay $500,000 in child support every year. That's the kind of family I want. Anyway. I like it. Child support is a fucking racket. Um, please, I stand with you. I understand. (laughs) All right. So here are a couple of my thoughts. So I've always kind of, um, introduced Citizen Kane as kind of a deconstructed Christmas carol because it's very similar in structure to a Christmas carol. I see what you mean. Uh, I see how Citizen Kane is the ghost of Christmas past, future, and present, uh, except it's a the amount of alcohol he's consumed determines which one he is. There is a lot of alcohol consumed in this movie, which makes it right for this podcast, and I don't know yes. why we didn't do it sooner, but I'm glad we saved it for one gear in. Alright, so, um, this film actually used a new technique, which is called deep focus, in which everything in the shot is in focus. Um, and that was kind of, like, a new thing. Like, because you- you'll notice, like, when you watch other movies, you'll see, like, the person's face or something in the background is in focus, and the rest is kind of blurry, and that's to give the whole, that's to give whatever's in focus The most resolution in the shot Uh, Orson Welles wanted to settle For everything being a lower resolution But everything being in focus And I, I think that worked out for them yeah and i think that like this is how uh documentaries are made now really like everything isn't focused it is not focus. its deeply focused on whatever they're shooting and uh, it it just really depends it's an aesthetic choice like if you if that's what you want it gives it a more theatrical feel and i think that's what orson wells was going for also what gives it kind of like a unique feeling cinematography wise is that every set had a ceiling so that that way they could do very low angles or they could do very high angles and that also helped with some of the lighting choices which talk about here in a second but and that just wasn't normal at the time because like i said everything was done on sound stages and so the sound stages didn't have um ceilings on them like the sets didn't have ceilings so that that way they could do overhead shots but orson wells didn't want to do those uh yeah he'd just have a roof on the place and then he can live there exactly that might have been also it he's like man I've got this theater troupe I need to house them somehow oh I'll just build a set that's a house yeah of course you gotta get creative you gotta get creative you gotta take care of the people that take care of you yeah there's not nearly enough people with stables around anymore so you can't just be like ah yeah sleep in the barn cause like people are driving cars now exactly and also it, it also pokes a big hole in that whole Jesus was born in a stable thing right cause they were all just driving model T's they were just all driving model T's if jesus was born today he would have been born on the streets anyway <laughs> so the use of lighting in the film actually helps us understand where the characters are emotional uh, certain characters have the lighting on their face completely dimmed out and i believe this is to show how foggy the memory of whoever is telling the story is it's to give you a sense that some of these narrators may or may not be unreliable because they can't remember certain parts of it so that's why like you know the faces are kind of covered and like shrouded in darkness while everything else is lit up bright as fuck i see did you notice that like it's a very it's it's a very interesting design choice and i think it's something that people overlook like how like lighting and uh set design and blocking in the film can like really really sell you on a certain feeling that's true uh, i hadn't really given it that much thought up until right now but yeah uh the one scene that comes to mind is um where he goes and talks to his second wife Mm -hmm. and how everything in the room is kind of dark even though there's a lot of lighting, you know like there's like the lights outside and it's raining so they have to take that into account too and then on the inside it's just, it's almost like a tunnel vision, but you can see everything Right, so it's like, and I think that's because no one was actually there to see that, Uh, like they just kind of know what happened, so I think it's somebody making up the conversations they were having, you know what I mean? So like, those are always things to keep in mind when you're watching something, because the director and the cinematographer may be trying to tell you Something through subtext mm-hmm. that you couldn't necessarily get from just the characters saying something. Like it's it's a great way to move the story along. Like lighting and uh cinematography are a great way to move a story along in a film. Just like um, a musical number is a way to move the story along in a music. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So speaking of when you take something from the stage or you take something from the cinema. You can't really do this on a stage without just using the lighting I guess, right? Well, like how do you mean? Like you like you don't think that Citizen Kane though as is could be done as a theatrical production? I think it might be a little too uh, advanced maybe. I agree. Like that's the thing with like different forms of storytelling, different forms of media. Like it depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. Like whereas like with music, like let's take a concept album for example, mm-hmm. you can't there's there's limitations to what you could do cuz people can't see. And like right. you can't spend the whole time just describing what's happening in a song like you kind of have to give people an abstract form of seeing what's going on and then with theater you can't always show everything because it's just kind of impossible or like improbable to show on a stage and then with cinema with uh cinema you can do basic anything especially now now with like you know even though we were shitting on you know animated actual people like you know we, we won't even like need real actors it's like it is kind of cool that we could basically do whatever we want it's like an open sandbox yeah that's kind of interesting how it's like uh doing an album you get a lot more control over what's going on it's just completely self-enclosed but then when you try to do a live performance there's a lot of other factors at play stuff has to work out right the first time exactly Uh, okay i I see how that works i see the comparison yeah it's um it's uh so i think it's just a difference of medium like just Different mediums have different boundaries. And uh, I think cinema is like finally kind of starting to be one of those. uh, it, It might be an anomaly where it's like and like it's limitless. Like there's nothing you can't do with a camera and some like, you know, proper editing techniques. Mm -hmm. anyway so that's kind of um that's kind of like where i want to end it but i do want to leave you with some very interesting knowledge um so in some of the opening scenes um you can see pterodactyls in the background of xanadu like in some of like the exterior shots and this is because they reuse stock footage from son of Kong*, which was an rko picture from like i think like a couple of years before Mm -hmm. and this was just to cut costs because they didn't want to have to build a real xanadu and like take real you know cinematography of it so they were just like okay we'll use that we'll try and keep as many pterodactyls out as possible oh yeah that's awesome i i love when other movies like one dirty finger into the the like the pudding of another movie exactly oh you know, and i'm sure citizen Kane is a much better film than son of kong I-, I need to get into some of those older monster movies that's kind of a part of cinema history that i'm not too familiar with but i do like me some godzilla and i do like me some king kong yeah uh that's funny though because like the son of kong is kind of weird but the like godzilla has a son in one of the movies too and it looks awful <laughs> oh i'm sure i mean it all looks bad it looks like a turd dude it's so bad jesus this is the second time turds have made it into our fuck podcast okay well it actually looks like a turd no one's trying to smoke it this time oh god let's not get let's not get into the combustion of feces again all right john i think that's gonna wrap it up for citizen kane uh i'm eh, words i'm very happy that you stuck with this with me for a year man like this this was originally your idea and i'm just i'm so glad that we just kind of ran with it you know i'm really glad that we did too uh at first i didn't really know what we were getting into if it was gonna be like a like a long-term thing or if we were actually gonna have any fun with it but But I've really enjoyed doing all this. Uh, I've enjoyed doing some of the writing that I've done. Uh, It's been a new experience for me. And I've really liked recording too. I think all of this is just, uh, it's a great thing. I I love doing it. I don't know what I'm talking about. I just really like it. I really like it too. And I'm really glad that if you've been sticking with us this whole time, I just thank you very much. Uh, You stuck through some uh, pretty unlistenable shit to begin with. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) And um, I I would like to think that we've gotten a lot better and that this thing is actually quite listenable now, especially because I've learned... Editing techniques, 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 techniques. I will. I will edit in some sort of technique thing there. I anyway. like it. Edit the technique in. <laughs> and I'm leaving this part in too, cause fuck it. <laughs> you guys get to see all the inside baseball on our one year special. All right. So please, as always, just tell people about the podcast. That that is that's how we keep going. That's how we get another gear out of this. Right. We, want, we, we don't wa- have a Patreon. We don't want your money yet. We we just want you to like us enough to give us a share with your friends please 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 for the love of god please please let us please let our work be for not be for not anyway so for four-year information i'm zach and i'm john go watch a new movie this week uh celebrate with us post your favorite uh four-year information memory on our facebook page or something like that or just you know send us 20 dollars we gotta pay frank somehow yeah or a piece of pizza (laughs) yes pizza is also always accepted all right thanks